0: is the bloody disgusting podcast network
1: you are all going to die tonight
2: Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in From Los Angeles, California Bloody Disgusting presents The Boo Crew Podcast Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand And Leone D'Antonio
0: I'm Leo I'm Lauren I'm Trevor And we are The Boo Crew Welcome to episode 123 We are joined remotely during quarantine by writer, director, and producer Betty Alvarez
3: This one is so fun. He tells you everything that happened in one night after posting a short film called Panic Attack on YouTube that landed him with Ghost House Pictures' Evil Dead movie in 2013. It's pretty much the best story ever.
4: For the first time ever, he reveals in detail all the different endings planned for Evil Dead. It's amazing to explore. We really get into the nitty gritty on that film, where it fits into the existing Evil Dead universe. Is Mia and her family related to Ash, possibly? The hidden secrets of the movie the incredible practical effects the props and more
3: we also get into his phenomenal follow-up don't breathe and his work on the from dust till dawn tv show also find out what's the state of all his projects he's been rumored to be involved in from the evil dead sequel a don't breathe sequel a new zombie film a return to the texas chainsaw massacre and so much more
0: sit back relax and enjoy mr Freddy alvarez i have seen the dark shadows moving in the woods and I have no doubt that whatever I have resurrected through this book is sure to come calling for me.
1: This is Fede Alvarez and you're about to open the Book of the Dead with the Blue Crew.
4: Joining the Boo crew via the Speakeasy Studio is one of the most thrilling filmmakers in cinema. He got his start as the award-winning creator of several shorts before releasing a Talk to Panico on YouTube in 2009, clocking in at just under 5 minutes and a reported budget of just $300. Sam Raimi's Ghost House Pictures came calling and the rest is history. His first feature film, 2013's phenomenal Evil Dead, it serves as a blitzful return to the world Sam initially created and he took it to shockingly new levels of intensity it is an absolute heart attack to watch he followed that up with 2016's incredible don't breathe an inventive thriller that is an exercise in adrenaline fueled tension and suspense unlike any journey taken by today's audiences in 2018 he returned for the whimsical action film the girl in the spider's web a tale spun of international espionage against massive set pieces, brilliant fight scenes, and an emotionally charged story arc. All of his films are not just casual popcorn movies. He creates immersive experiences for the viewer. You have real world physical reactions to what he's putting you through and to what he is putting his performers through. You curl up in your seat, you wince, you scream. Everything he does is an e ticket roller coaster ride. We are honored to welcome Mr. Fetty Alvarez.
1: Yeah. 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 (laughs) that was amazing I don't know know, who you were talking about but he sounds like like a cool guy (laughs) he certainly
4: is (laughs) Betty thank you so much for taking the time to chat today and thank you so much for your inspiring work now going back to the very beginning what were the horror and sci-fi films that got you as pumped as we are about your stuff any formative experiences that stand out for you
1: well, yeah, as an audience, you mean, I mean, what's the first yeah, thing that got me. I mean, it's yeah, I mean, it's like I started watching movies when I was very young um, for some reason. You know, I think for some kids just watch cartoon for a long time. I, my father was a big lover of, of movies. So I, you know, he just introduced me to a lot of things very early on. But I think like anybody, like anybody else, like, you know, when you turn 12, I think that's the... Uh, the moment where suddenly you're interested in, in darker stuff, and you, you and you your friends start discovering those, those sort of thi- those sort of things, and and I you know just a bunch of friends of mine and and myself were cinephiles and at a very young age, so we really want to. And it was also the VHS era, right? The VHS era where had that kind of a it was kind of forbidden fruit that you can go once you could go on your own to, to to rent a movie. It was it was such an excitement, and and you didn't want to rent the ones that your parents would want you to rent, so you end up renting. The ones that look it's not for you. So what's not for you? Usually, will be horror. It'll be action or sci-fi action, and a lot of things. I mean, I'm you know I'm 42 now, so a lot of, a lot of my influences when when I was that age. That's 90, so it's easy to do math. I was 90. It was 90, 1990 when I was 12. So everything that goes had all the movies that were the big hits back then, like in VHS and movies, is usually the kind of stuff that. those are my influences usually like anything post late 80s early 90s is is a lot of the cinema that I loved right is it the best cinema in the world who gives a fuck I don't know but I I, it's it's the one that to me it's the one that really got me and so when I started to make not not real films but shorts and stuff like that myself like that's the first stuff that you want to do was was, was to recreate those experiences you had and recreate those stories so that's why I I, I went there right away. Right. And, and movies like Evil Dead were you know, like the original was kind of the first stuff that made such an imprint in myself just because it was it, it was a time that we felt we went a little bit too far when it, come, when it came to each other. chose the forbidden film, right? Right. It's the one that we regret taking, the one we did.
4: Tell us about the creation of, of Panic Attack and how fast that ended up having an impact on your career path.
1: Well, wow, well, wow. um, that was you uh, know it was it, it was part of a time when I was really prolific somehow. I, it, uh, I was uh, doing music videos and shorts, and uh, I also wasn't that busy actually working. I was um, when I came out of college because I had done a few shorts and music videos since I was very young. I was doing those. I was lucky to be hired by a production company to do commercials. I never had a very successful career in commercials, but I did a few of those in my twenties. I had a blast doing that. Like it was great to pay the rent you know, doing actually, actually shooting and directing. And um, so, but uh, there was a lot of sitting around now because when you get hired as a junior director in a new company, I was 21, 22, I don't know about that age. And, and you know, you know, you don't get all the jobs at all. You're just sitting around. So that gave me time to really do things and try things, and experiment and do shorts and music videos. Nothing, and you're like, it's all this is Uruguay, so it's not like you know, growing up making music, music videos in LA or New York where you imagine, oh, yeah, you work with all the coolest <laughs> bands, and like, no, this is not like that at all. It, this is like small bands, or like, it's just a couple bands like Friends and stuff like that. Very, everything was very low key because Uruguay is a three million people, people country, so there's not a massive market for music videos or anything like that. So, but I think that that, that was a good thing because that allowed me. To really take risk and do whatever, because no one, no one was risking a lot of money or anything like that. So the less risk, I think, yeah, that applies at any time and you know to, to film and uh, and to any, any sort of art in general. The lesser the risk uh, that people think they're taking, the better the chance to really transgress and do something unique. Um And all of the risk sometimes is in your mind and and not in the reality. But at least for us back there, back on those days, this is like. Mid 2000s, when we started um, to really all the work that I've been that I was doing since I was a kid, really, when I started shooting for the first time when I was seven years old, all all that experience of my teen years doing short videos with friends and 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 sci fi and adventure and action adventure stuff with my friends suddenly paid off. When in my mid-20s, I was suddenly given the tools to actually de- do a d- bit more distant stuff. And also, you know, a lot of people might hear into this, they listen to this, I might be too young, but there was a huge break um, in technology at that time, in the early 2000s. Like It was it was like kind of a magical opening to an, an access to technology that was impossible before. And uh, so I call it at the time, like some democratization of technology, because Film and shooting, it was always something that was left for people that had money or had access to, to expensive cameras and equipment. And suddenly, uh, by the time, early 2000s, uh, the prices of cameras started being cheap. And it, you were we were getting close to suddenly it was going to be a camera on your phone. So there was, was a huge change in, in the world of short movies. Um, not a lot of people don't know that. But the, I, even myself, I remember like when I submit my first short film, to a to a festival like late like in ninety nine to two thousand, it was probably like five shorts. By the time I was doing that, five years later, it was like eighty nine shorts in the same festivals. So, so yeah, it was crazy. But it, it, we forgot how crazy those times were when it came to technology and, and 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 the access to anybody to have equipment to tell stories. So you know, so I was one of those guys. I was a little bit ahead of the curve over there and. And I, when it came to, to experiment and, and editing my computer and all all those sorts of things, I I was really good with um, with um, software that, you know, 3D Studio and, and After Effects and stuff like that. At home as well, that I learned on my own or whatever, teach me that, told me that I was just me, myself, like, desperate to do a certain kind of special effects for some short I was doing with a friend. So I had to learn to do it myself. I had no money to come to hire anybody. So it's like, I'm going to have to learn how to do it. And uh, so that that that's how I kind of learned a lot of uh, parts of the craft of filmmaking on my own. And so came 2006 is when uh, when we came up with the idea of doing Panic Attack. And uh, originally, it was actually based on an introduction. It was an intro something I saw in Amsterdam where there was some some giant robot outside in Amsterdam. I was actually living in Amsterdam, and in 2004 where I was doing a master's in screenwriting back then. And um, and I saw that and it was like, it's such a cool thing to see something sci-fi that happens actually in the city that you live in. So I went back to Uruguay in 2000, at the end of 2005 when I ended the master's and I was like, I want to do a short, like, uh, actually, actually, I remember even talking with some of those guys that did the original and they were like, I'll just do your own thing. And we, we end up uh, creating this, this crazy adventure. It was a five minute, you know, Attack that was supposed to be the former was supposed to be a YouTube video, which right now it's not. Again, it's not so common to refer to a YouTube video, but you have to think that at that time, at that time, YouTube was two years old. <laughs> so imagine that. It's two, two, so yes, yeah, so 2006 actually is one year old. So we, but we, but YouTube became a, kind of a big moment um, for me at least. It was interesting to see because after 9 11 not at, right at that time but, but a few years later when YouTube was there like suddenly there was a lot of uh mm-hmm. videos that were just compilation of 911 footage that said you know we always remember and stuff like that and it will just have a compil you know they will have a soundtrack some music in the background and it will, and it will put all the footage they had of 911 attack put together right so it makes it for this very intense you know like three minute Pieces of real footage with the music and some blue screen at the beginning, at the end, some with some titles. So that was the inspiration, really. It was like, well, let's do that, but with a fake one, with a with a sci-fi thing. So, so there you go. So that's how kind of the idea for Panic Attack started. So we went out. We really had no money. We those that money. We it was like three hundred bucks that uh, we had to pay. 50 extras, the ones that we paid because a lot of them were friends and your friends don't get paid. <laughs> the, the ones that we didn't know got paid out of the, the the 50 extras we had. We had to rent a bus and we had to feed them. And that's all the money we need to spend. Then the rest, it, it was just me and my DP, Pedro Luque, which actually ended up doing a Don't Breathe with him. Uh, it, it was me, Pedro, uh, Rodo, my co-writer on Evil Dead and do was kind of running around with us as well. You actually see him, he's featured on the show and panic attack like a, like a writer on Evil Dad. You can see him on a payphone turning around and <laughs> seeing some ship uh, blowing up. So we, you know, it was just very few of us Brian uh, around the city just with no permits doing a shooting 50 extras running in some places, but most of the time you don't see anything. You just see buildings. We're just shooting upwards into the skies uh, because if you look at the street, you will see people shopping. So so we basically went out, we shot it, and then by the time I was done with the footage and it was time to start with the post-production, I mean, for people that have not seen it, this is very heavy in VFX because <laughs> you have a bunch of giant robots destroying the city. So by the time I was going to start to do that, I realized I just I didn't know how to do it. Really, I didn't, I didn't have the knowledge and, and the technology wasn't even there to actually do it the way I wanted to do it. So it was kind of a bummer, and 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 I had to push it to back, and it was it was in a drawer somewhere for a while because I shot it in two thousand six, but didn't come out until the end of until December two thousand nine, and then those years were just a bunch of years of uh, doing bad commercials and bumping into friends on the streets. that would go, hey, what happened with that short you were talking so much about that you're gonna do Panic Attack? Oh, that's gonna be you say it was gonna be amazing, blah blah blah, and everybody was mocking me about it. And I was like, yeah, one day I'll finish it. It was just a bit a bit ambitious and uh and then one day i just couldn't take it anymore like every time i would stop with someone that actually worked on it of the five people that work it, but that will ask me about it hey what happened with the short like you what happened with that short yeah i was like oh fuck it's just gonna end that it's just gonna finish this thing i have to finish this to put myself out of this misery and uh and i and i suddenly devote i said like okay, okay i'm gonna take two months off you know and, and it's just gonna work on it and, you know at that point i just i lived on my own i think i was dating my now wife at that time. I think she was fed up also with people asking about the shirt. So uh, we said, okay, well, let's, you know, let's finish this thing. And I dedicated a lot of my time to finish, it and thank God I did. It was the best thing I ever done because I was so close to never finish it. And um, I finished it. I, I I got rid of it almost because I was so tired of it. And it was three years of my life not actually working on it, people talking about it and the expectations and the broken hearts of people that had been part of it that thought it was never going to be done. So so it was like finally when i done it, at that point, YouTube was turning about to turn five years old. And, uh, and for the first time, YouTube introduced their HD format. Uh, for the first time, it looked good. Before that, something that looked like YouTube meant it looked like shit. It looks pixelated and compressed. So uh, so at the point I said, okay, well, it, look, it looks good enough to put it in there. And that was always the intention to make it look like one of those videos. So I ended up in YouTube overnight, like I dump it. And, it was, and some of my friends were... Man, you're not going to take it to festivals and, like, you know, you work so hard on it. You sh- I don't know, show off, you know, put it on a big screen and talk with people afterwards. Like, that's what you do at festivals. And, and I was like, I don't know, I just don't, I can't, I can't keep talking about it. <laughs> I just have to get rid of it. So we, so we got rid of it. Like, we just dumped it in YouTube, we just put it on YouTube and went to bed. And, 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 you know, it was kind of that's that. Let's move on to the next thing. And, um, went to bed and, and literally the next day, I, it's true story I, I get a phone call and he's a guy from Warner Brothers and I'm well he claims to be but uh, he's uh, he's from you know he has a, a, a Hispanic last name so he sounds a bit Hispanic so I'm sure it's one of my friends that is just pulling my leg that is convinced that I'm convinced that the day I put on YouTube I gotta get a call from Hollywood so he's, and I, this is me waking up in the morning, like, you I give a shit about anything. And the guy's are like, hey, I'm, yeah, I'm from Warners. I saw your short thing. It's great. I, I was curious if you were interested in making movies over here. And like, no. I was like, you, yeah, of course. Well, um, so who are you again? And he says, I'm from Warners. I'm from Warners. I was like, I don't know the company. And this is me teasing him because I think he's teasing me. Right. So I'm just <laughs> joking with him. I was like, I don't know. It was, oh, we're kind of big company. We make, and the guy started pitching Warners to me. Like I'm, like, I'm taking a leak. I remember taking a leak and trying to be very loud with the leak to sound disrespectful. Yeah. And the guy is like, hearing them, just, you know, hearing the pee in the toilet. You know, and, and the guy is like, so confused. I'm like, what the fuck is this guy? midway through the conversation, when I'm trying to figure out who of my friends is this guy that actually has a pretty good uh, American accent, I'm like, I open my computer and I see I have 150 emails from Hollywood. Oh my god! That's wow. when I go, Damn. I go white. I go like, oh god, this is real. This guy is actually legit. It had to roll back on everything. It kind of apologized. It kind of jump into this whole mess of like, I'm so sorry. I was so convinced. It was a friend of mine. Like, I was just, I know who you guys are. I know who Warner's is. And I went back and, anyways, and that that was kind of how it started. It was, and it was a kind of a crazy. Four-day thing, which, you know, it, it was uh, – that was, I think, it was a Friday, no, it was Saturday, something like that. And by 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 Monday, I was in L.A. Like, uh, one of the agencies had flew me over. I had, like, two weeks of meetings ahead of me, of general meetings with people that just – so I sure wanted to meet me, and I was, yeah, I was blown away by the whole thing. I was having a blast, honestly. I was, it was so weird, and I had nothing to lose. It was one of the things where I felt like, life oh, it doesn't work. I go back home. I was happy back home doing my things, so it wasn't that I needed it. I was desperate to work to get into Hollywood or anything like that. It was just—and it was it's such a surreal thing that I never, in one moment in my life, living in Uruguay, I thought I was ever going to work in Hollywood, so— so I just, you know, I came here. I went to have coffee with the first person that I was meeting. And uh, his name is Roy Lee. He's a big Hollywood producer and a uh, good, good friend of mine now. And, and we and, and we just had coffee when we're done. You know, we talk movies. I have no plan. He asked me, what's a movie you want to do? I was like, fuck, do I know? Like, I never thought about I was ever going to be able to be here and ask that question. Last week, I was... Getting rid of this short, and now I'm here, so it was kind of surreal. So, didn't have any plans. So that was Monday morning, and then uh, he took me to. Well, he wasn't going to take me, but he, the the coffee was over, and um, and I asked him what he was doing, and he said he was going to do a screening for me. screen sounded like a free movie, and I was like, gotta watch a free movie, and uh, and that was a new movie that wasn't released. It was actually a Kickass. It was a um, an unfinished version of kick-ass. And and I and I went to see that with him and I met Nathan Kahane, which is Sam Raimi's partner uh, at the time, and uh, and he mentioned, well, Sam Raimi saw your short, he loves it, and we chat movies and and just like that, without an agent or manager or a lawyer or anything, just like chatting with this guy outside a the theater, we we decide that we're going to make a movie together, and the, and then I basically cancel all my meetings. I was like, uh, I, I said, I, I didn't came to Hollywood to. Uh, meetings, generals, students and all that. I'll do that eventually. All I need to do now is go home and uh, and get my co-writer and start figuring out what that movie is. And uh, that's, that's basically how it started. And obviously that, that movie, it took a little while, but that movie ended up being uh, my first film, Evil Dead. That's insane. Oh my wow. God. This is like the best story <laughs> <I get> ever, <laughs> ever told. I know. It doesn't happen every day. It doesn't. I thought it was. So normal back then. I was like, well, this is the easiest town ever. <laughs> it's just your short, just show up, that's it, you go back home. Then it proved to be a very specific moment in time, which, you know, I, I obviously I give myself credit, part of the credit for it, but because the short was very special at the time, but it was, it was it, it, a lot had to do with what I was telling you. There was, I was right ahead of that little curve of like, suddenly the world was changing and everybody had access to certain, uh, you know, the ability to do certain vi- um, visual effects in your computer and all that didn't exist before that. And that was just right at the time. So then after that, a lot, a lot of people, you know, YouTube shorts were a bunch of amazing and even way better visual effects than what Panic Attack had at the time. Had a, you know, there's ton of those since then. Um, and, you know, and they do get attention from Holly once in a while and uh, all of that. But it uh, that that story like that is kind of very strange. And, uh, you know, now that I wear my producer hat as well, like the last few years, like it, does, it doesn't happen. We're always looking for who done that and who's the person that you can just bring in in here and it will give you a movie. And it doesn't it really happens. And, and I think, again, I give me part of the credit, but as well as it was. It was the, the right time, you know, it was the right moment for me.
0: I remember when this movie came out uh, on on YouTube, streaming, it, it, you know, this, uh, this short uh, Paca de Pánico, you know, and the only tidbits of information that we could figure out was that it was filmed in your hometown in Montevideo, Uruguay, and that perhaps it was a low-budget project, like maybe $300 do-it-yourself-at-home special effects, you know, video effects. I was really curious, uh, since it was such a huge hit here, and it led you to where you are now, was it a big hit in your hometown back then?
1: It was. It was, but like, oh, is no one, uh, you know, it's a profit, it just land. Like, it's. it was a little bit of a slow burn over there. Like, I think by the time I was already back with a Hollywood deal... Hollywood deal under my arm. That's when he started. Like people started going, "Ah, this thing is might be, you know, interesting." <laughs> it was, but it, 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 you know, it, everybody saw it. Yeah, I think, in fairness to Uruguay and, and the region, actually, I think it blew up in Argentina. For someone called me and said, "Like they they showing it on, in, on the news." Like it wasn't. I mean, actually, before even I think it was probably the, because it was kind of an overnight thing. But even on that Saturday, before people knew about, before the world knew. Uh, the whole the shorty was turning into a Hollywood deal. Before all that, there was a friend of mine, that, uh, my cousin actually, she was living in London. She sent me a photograph from the newspaper they give you in the subway that had a photo of the short on the cover. That said, like, big, robots, uh small budget. So so regardless of the Hollywood thing, it was—because then when the Hollywood news came out, like, a week later, that I had—that that, that was given a, the chance to make a movie over there, and it was kind of a big deal at the time, that was announced everywhere, and then it became news all over the world, and it was—that was, was given interviews to, to any place, you name it. But, but before that, it was just on the strength of the short, and the fact that it was done with no money, it kind of—it really spread like crazy. I think also it was basically people hadn't seen a lot of, um, Sci-fi stories like that that didn't take place in New York or or Los Angeles, a big city. So there was something I remember. A lot of people like telling, uh, commenting on the short, like it, though they knew it was Uruguay, it felt like it could have been their how their home because Uruguay looks like uh, a lot of third world countries in Europe, and 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 so a lot of people there were like, oh, that's you know, it feels like home, feels like me, and they and they relate, you know. And also they had no, they had no language though, apart from the creds here and there, like there was no spoken lines. So that that also made it travel super well right but yeah it was it was a it was a big thing and, and for for a few days i i left for hollywood so now i came back and then and then when i came back it was with the deal on that so yeah i remember like some crazy days back home where until today there's no one i don't think there's no one has not seen it in uruguay it was three million people so it's easy to reach all of it but uh you know there's not a lot of shorts like that about the city what did it feel like to
4: have that level of trust thrust upon you by Sam Raimi and that team did they ever explain to you what exactly he saw in the short and what he saw in your potential from that short film
1: well it is curious uh, because again like I was saying you know you I don't know if you guys know but on the last the last year well actually here when now with the when the coronavirus hit I had two movies for the first time I had two movies in production where I was just a producer, right? So so now I'm in the place where I, I try to find young directors uh, to work with us and with Bad Ombre, with our little company. We're doing, uh, we're in production with uh, Don't Breathe 2 and with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And um, so it, it was interesting. I was actually, I called Sam and I was, you know, we're chatting with still friends. Uh, we're good friends still today. And um, so we're talking about, you know, Hiring directors and how 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 suddenly being a director producer have to stand back, uh, give the directors a room. How you know all the sort of things that he'd been through so many times. So I was chatting with him about it, and uh, and I kind of asked him that question: is like, how how did you knew back then? How did you know back then that we? we're going to be capable of, of actually delivering a movie. So obviously, he's answered a little bit of, you know, paraphrasing him, but a little bit of it's like, you never know, really. It's always a leap of faith. You never really know because a lot of times it doesn't go well. But um, it's, I, I remember learning a lot of the time how people tend to see, you know, they see a short movie or, or a movie sometimes, an independent movie, and then you, you, you learn, oh, that director is hired to make this other movie, this Hollywood movie, or this bigger movie, and stuff like that, right? And a lot of time you go like, well, the short is not that good, or the movie is not that good. You know, like that happens all the time, uh, we'd, particularly with some Hollywood movies director and made a small independent movie, and then they're given the range of some massive franchise, and 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 what I learned at the time, it was that, in, in, and I learn every day. Also, when I have time, have time. I meet a director. A lot of it is, just a, I mean, what they were able to do on a short. That's one part. Another one is is be able to communicate what you want to do, to be a, to, to be a person that, you know, to meet, to meet them and make them feel that they're going to want to make a movie with you. A lot of the things, there's a lot of things that are very hard to describe about why they will trust you, right, to, with the movie. But um, at the end of the day, what, what the short had that was undeniable is that that it was five minutes that, you could, that, that I managed to capture people's attention and keep them hooked to the thing till the end, Take them through through a bunch of emotions, and and wove them at the end with some big finale, right? Uh, so th- that I could do, and 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 that's not easy to do in general. It's like a, what what a boring movie will do, or a bad movie that doesn't work. Sometimes it's just not entertaining. It just lose you. It's just not thrilling enough. So at, at least for genre movies, and what he was looking for at the time, I think the ability to Thrill you and entertain you and and shock you and 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 really grab your attention and not let you go until it ends is what you look on a on a storyteller right so that's that that was basically the thing and and that in that, I, that I felt he trusts us and um, not only that I mean the crazy part was in not 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 just that he trusts us to direct it but that he trusts us to write it When back then I mean we could barely speak the language it was back that bad but but it was a, a, it was definitely more limited that is now after i lived uh, quite a while so it was pretty pretty shocking but he he really trusted. us he, he just he went for his with his guts and um he took a bed i think he was quite alone in it like uh, his partners at the time were not that sure that it was a good idea that we we're gonna write it they always tell me the story when we finally submit the script Everybody was like, "Yeah, sure. It's kind of well, you know. Let's we have, we'll have to read it before we move on to real writers, but let's read it." It was one of those things, and uh, and I was I always loved The, the, the story that uh, Jr. Young, who was the executive producer on the film, a good friend of mine, he he just walked into Rob Tapper's office with the script in his hand, and it was like, and he looked at him, and Rob Tapper was like, "It's shit, right?" He was like, "It's actually pretty good," <laughs> and they were all. They weren't. They, were, they didn't think it was a masterpiece. They just were shocked that it was actually a movie. That that made sense. <laughs> I think that's that was a that was a very low bar they had, and they, and they were surprised that to me and my co writers succeeded at hitting that bar.
4: And especially because not only was it you know they're giving you a project but it's sacred space for Sam and Rob
1: right it's the evil dead that's a huge deal for them of course and they and they had been looking for a director for a while knew and, and uh and they couldn't find they couldn't agree the 3 of them on who it was going to be and, and a lot of the things so it was um it was you know it was quite shocking i mean look i, I, I it's hard for me to look to, you know when i look back and think like wow what would they do something like that and there was something we had going for us, uh, Roto and I, my co-writer and myself. We hadn't, we didn't know better. We just had no clue. Uh, you know, there, there's a saying that I didn't, I didn't, you know, the first times I heard in my life, I never understood what it meant. And now I do. She that the, the more I learn, the less I know. And 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 it's, we did we hadn't learned anything at the time. So we didn't understand how Hollywood worked. We were like, if it was up to us, it would be an NC-17 movie that nobody nobody will watch, and it will be fine. We didn't we didn't care. We we did not understand a lot of. I mean, and we were huge cinephiles and and Hollywood lovers, and we read a lot about it. But that's one thing There there's, there's and probably these days you can know more about it because you guys people like you guys do such a good job and in their way. They have a lot of more in, in, into how Hollywood works that it was, you know, 10 years ago. It was a lot of more of a mystery of how the deal making and the money and the box office and all those things. So at the time we really didn't know anything, absolutely anything. So, so all we knew is like, what do we want to see as an audience? All I knew was I'm an audience. I watch movies all the time. I go to watch this stuff uh, uh, on the cinemas uh, all the time. At that time, I I used to watch, I I wish I could back to those days. Well, I would watch definitely like three or four movies a week. uh, uh, That was easy. Uh, In theaters, I would watch everything that was in theaters just to go to the theaters. So I had a good grip on what the audience wanted. And I was kind of the target age. I I was like 30, I think, at a time, something like that. I was really, I was thirty-two. I was really, I had a clear vision for that. So it was like, if you ask me, what does the audience wants to see when there's a new Evil Dead? Is this and that, and this and that, and that. So I wasn't thinking in terms of is this commercial enough? Is this going to be accessible for an audience? Is this is this a smart way to do it? Budget wise, can you know? It's uh, none of those things were in my mind. So we were pure filmmakers, like I think I'll never be again in a way. Because once you spend a lot of time here, you start concerning yourself with a lot of things I have to do with, uh, you know, make sure people get their money back. And, uh, and, uh, and well, you know, I, it, some people do, some people don't. I mean, it depends on how you operate. But it's there's, there was a moment in time which usually that's why those first movies can be so special because you completely... De- and also we were like st- such a fish out of the water. We were coming from Uruguay. It wasn't that we were going to AFI and grew up here and we're like looking for that Hollywood opportunity and figure a way out to break into the industry. We're never trying to break into the industry because that had never happened in the history of our country before. So you're not going to try to do something that ever happens. You just don't think about it. So we're, we're quite pure in our intentions and in our ambitions. We just wanted to give ourselves the movie we wanted to see in, in theaters. We've
4: always heard that uh, Diablo Cody who wrote uh, Juno who did Juno in Jennifer's body was somehow involved in the production or pre-production at
1: least of, of Evil Dead what was what was her she story? wasn't she wasn't she she basically she she was great she was it was basically based on our own insecurity with the script once we were done and, and they were saying it's ready it's a movie. A part of us were like, sure, it's just not, cannot be like we, because while we were writing, we thought we were doing, we were making a mess. We we're like, we, we don't even know. It's the first <laughs> time. It wasn't the first time we were writing a script, but it was the second time we were actually. It was the second script we ever wrote with my co-writer. So, of course, it's not Shakespeare at all. But, but at least story wise, it's quite, it's quite interesting and and has some. A lot of rules that you, we broke a lot of rules when it comes to storytelling, you know, like having the the, the, the protagonist becoming the antagonist and then back to the protagonist is a weird thing that doesn't happen every day in movies. Uh, but, uh, it, you know, it was based on that thing of not learn, not knowing anything. Well, I mean, we knew we didn't learn anything. It was just based on our instincts. So, so we were done with the scripts, they were ready to make the movie, and, um, and we felt like, can we get a real writer to kind of take a look at it and rewrite dialogue and, and just you know, just give us peace of mind? And, and they were like, sure, we can do that. And we and and Diablo is a big horror fan and and she was good friends with them They they had made Juno together with Nathan Kahane and, and those guys at, at the time which is Sam Partners it's different companies we had Ghost House in on one side which is Sam Raimi's partners and and they had um, Mandate which was a company that made the movie at the time then they changed names a few times and now they're they're they became Lionsgate or well, they're bought by Lionsgate but um they. And so those guys basically, they had a good relationship. They, they, they. I met with her. We, we, we agree on what kind of movie it should be. She wrote a draft, and and then when I read it, I felt like oh, just suddenly it wasn't my movie anymore. Yeah, but it was, but it wasn't. It was like. Uh, it wasn't worse or better. I don't know. It was just not my voice. You know, it was it wasn't sure. me. So, so when something is not your voice, is so weird. It's, it's, it's as simple as like when you hear yourself in a recording, and that's it's actually your real voice. But for you, it freaks you out because it doesn't sound exactly like you hear yourself. <laughs> With scripts, it's the same. But you hear people using expressions that you will never say in your life. You, see, you hear characters. Uh, doing ethical, more things that maybe the other writer think is okay, but you think it's awful. So it's all the things that just usually it's, it's been always a struggle for me. There's a reason I, why I don't make a lot of movies is because a lot of directors, they just make other people's scripts and, uh, and, and they're fine with that. I, I always have trouble with that. And it's hard for me to just get a script and go like, yeah, I'll shoot this thing. Uh, most of the time I've been deeply involved in the writing. So the so you know so that was basically it so Diablo gave us a draft and I was like, I kind of prefer my original draft and the producers were like, we're fine with that well, you know it's actually this what you like whatever you prefer I was like well, let's go back to my draft and we'll go back to my draft so it is it, the different in dialogue and character setup and stuff like that it was probably better and deeper at the character level and the beginning. It was probably slower as well, uh, maybe more of a slow burn. i have to look it up one day and, and read it and share it with the world. See, just release the unreleased Diablo Cody version of it. It's an interesting exercise to do, kind of to read and, and get behind the process of, of how, how we make these movies.
3: Well, watching Evil Dead, I noticed the details like Linda in the original Evil Dead. She was wearing a Michigan State sweatshirt and then Mia was wearing one in yours. How important was it to pay homage to the original evil dead like was that a very important
1: aspect it was yes um you you know this this thing when um the little details right that uh stuff like that for me is like it, when i when you do that in a movie, it's like even when you you know when you're with a bunch of friends somewhere you might be uh, maybe you' see them you know you take a row of five few, six people watching a movie. And suddenly something happens, someone says something in the movie that is very, that it just relates to this inside joke that you and your friend had. And you look across the road to their friend, your friend, and the in the last and you, you give a look of, yeah, yeah. He goes like, yeah. And you get a kick at that, <laughs> that moment of, and then no one else in the middle understand why the fuck are you laughing. It's just, but you, the two of you know there's something very special about that. It's that experience, a human experience that, that, and movies give you that in in, in in many levels, right? When when a movie gives you that moment that the best jokes, the best things usually think that you, you feel like you're the only one that get it, right? And and, and and you cannot believe it. I mean, some of the best things I've experienced in, in movies and some video games as well is when suddenly there's a reference to something that I felt I was the only guy in the world that have seen that obscure movie or heard that weird joke or, or, or remember that guy, that character from that TV show, remember? right? So so that's kind of the, the, the inside reference that it seems that it's obscure enough that will make you feel special. That's something I always try to do. And uh, on Evil Dead, it was obviously it was we knew it was in order to for the movie to be ahead and needed to have a bigger audience, that it wasn't just the fans of the original, a lot of those people were just too old to go to the movies already or were my age. We're going to be very, you know, they, you know, there wasn't people weren't waiting for the movie. The fans of the original were not waiting for that movie at all. They just hated the concept of having a new one because they thought it was going to be a remake and it are going to override the original, which was never the intention. But it was promoted as a new thing. It wasn't even promoted as a remake. The trailers never said a remake or anything like that. So, but, but still, you know, I was one of those people that when, when I heard way before I knew I was going to do it myself. When I heard that we're going to do one, I hated the idea. Like we all do when we hear about any remake in general of a movie that we love. So the intention was how do I make this movie to the new audience, but I make the fans of the original, the true fans of the original, that guy on the other side of the line on the road that looks at me and goes like, yeah, hey, you got that one. Oh, great. Because I think that was very important. And, uh, and there's, yeah, those are the obvious ones. But it's really, it's there's it an infinite amount <laughs> of weird things that I went an effort of putting on the table. I mean, there's a there's a shod. I think I probably mentioned this before, but there's a shod. There's a bunch of that are obvious. You know, like the shirt that when she pick up the necklace at the end, it's, it's shaped as a skull, like in the original movie. There's a lot of th- little things like that that are the same. But um, but we even went to weird, bizarre uh, extents where there is one moment where you see. The, sh- the, sh- the 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 camera barely captures for a second the table and they've been playing they have been playing cards I think Eric was playing solitaire or something with the cards in some in some moment and the way the order the cards are laid out on the ground on the on the table are exactly the same order that on the first movie they are named you know when they're playing the guessing game in the original movie. Cheryl turns around. She starts guessing them, all of them, one step after another. And that's when, that's when she reveals she's, been, she's possessed. So we play, we place them on the table exactly the same order that are, that are named on the original guessing game.
4: Oh, my gosh. That's, I didn't even notice that. That's wow. amazing. That's but who's going
1: to pick that up? No one. But if anybody, for some weird reason, remember the order because they remember the, the dialogue, which some people do. They will look at it and go, like, it's just like a little miracle, you know? That you look at it yeah. and, and, and you believe that it's a weird coincidence. How that could have happened? So it, it was a lot of fun doing a lot of those strange things. And there's even more. I, I forgot about half of them. So it, it would be interesting when one day someone take the effort of like trying to find them all because they're. <laughs> and
3: I assume that Jane levy losing her arm was an intentional homage, right?
1: Yeah, yeah that's for sure. There was a lot of it that it was basically we were thinking that we though we knew we never thought saw it as a remake, we thought the book had a twisted sense of humor, and the book will will love to to get destiny, you know, just to have some events to occur. Again, so her losing the arm and a lot of things obviously were references to, to to the character of Ash and the and the chainsaw and all that. But again, it's, it's it's some of the. I mean, it's it's been really interesting for me to see how this movie went from you know coming out. It was a big hit when it came out. It was number one in the world and and did great in the United States. And it was all this thing that we never expected at the time. And, uh, and then kind of when I went, out, I went away, I think maybe because my next movie was bigger and, and a lot of uh, way you can measure a movie. Uh, so, so suddenly it was like, oh, well, that was that was it. Evil Dead was a fun start, but hey, don't breathe. But interesting enough, like Evil Dead has been, with the years, capturing this kind of thing that is a lot of people that just love the movie. Just love the movie. Just stayed with people. And, uh, and a lot of those people people that never saw the original. It's just like... Like it happened to the true fans of the original, like they're an audience that saw them saw the movie when they were they were really young, you know. They maybe they saw it when they were fourteen, and uh, and they're twenty now, you know, and, and they're twenty one, and they it's their favorite it's their favorite movie ever because they saw at that right time, it did the right thing. The movie, the things that we did in that movie, no one was doing at the time when it came to horror. If you look back at the movies coming out those years, they were all like um, ghost stories most of them PG-13, um, scary stuff, but, but a completely different tone and style. And the old dad came out to be this horror yes. that they didn't give a shit. Out. I know, look, we the things we did in that movie will never, will be impossible do these days. The tree rape, come on, like, who's going to dare do that? The, there's all these sorts of things that were kind of done in a vacuum that was me and my co-writer from Uruguay making a movie in New Zealand. We shot most of it and all of it. And uh, so a lot of bizarre things happen because of that. And, and we gave the world a movie that was pretty weird at the time. Uh, so I think that that stayed with people. And, and I love to see that. Like, uh, I love seeing that these days, like uh, that young audience growing up and and, and keeping the movie and uh, having the movie in a dear place.
4: In your vision of the, of the universe that this movie that your evil Dead takes place in, do you see it? Relating to the timeline of what went on with Ash
1: at all, or is it a completely different tale? It is. the The, the thing is definitely is the same timeline, but the problem is like have, the first thing you have to decide is like what's what's the right timeline for Evil Dead, Evil Dead One or Evil Dead Two? Because those are two different. I mean, Evil Dead Two is a remake of of Evil Dead One, done, <laughs> yeah, it's a done weird way, in a different way. I mean, they, I mean, I'm good friends with all of those guys that made that movie, so I know for a fact that it's just they they start again. I mean, I get Even if you don't know, you have to watch the movies, and uh, you know, Ash has the same name, but it's a, he's not going to the cabin with a bunch of friends. He's going with his girlfriend to have a romantic weekend. So a different, completely different story, right? And and then right. this other characters show up. They haven't, you know, I, I think a lot of people either they remember it wrong or they just haven't watched him in a long time. But they are completely different timelines: Evil Dead One and Evil Dead Two. So my answer to your question is, like, ours respond to Evil Dead 1 for a simple reason. is because when you get to the cabin, there's a rusty car in there. that's, That's the same car that Bruce Campbell drove in the original film. So if we were in the timeline of the second one, the car wouldn't be there because that car went to the medieval times. But at the end of the first one... That's supposed to end with Bruce, you know, character dying, you know, taken by the force. Um, that then in the second one was reinterpreted as like the force was turning him. But on the original, the end of the movie was, and he dies, taken by the force. So if that's what happened or wh- whatever happened to him, he might have turned as well. That movie ends and he, when he's trying to walk away from the cabin and the car is stayed is stay there. So that's why when that's why the car that Mia is sitting on is the same it's supposed to be Ash's character from the first film that is still rotten in a way, and then and and uh, you know still still sits there on the, on the next to the house. Gotcha. So is Mia's family related to Ash? That's a good question. It's a tricky one to answer because we did have uh, a lot of intentions of doing it, and and she still might be related. If she is, she doesn't know because we we had this uh, very complex uh, character past for the for the character of Mia. And, uh, and we and David so so they were uh, siblings, but uh they have different parents we we thought they have different fa- fathers so yes they they might be related that that was always a thought we kept in the back you know when you don't write it and you don't put it in the movie, it becomes whatever you want it to be. so for us they we thought because the only reason why the cabins stay in the family is because but technically that cabin could have been related to him, but if I remember correctly they rented that cabin in the first movie so it would have been a coincidence they rent the same cabin because I think when they when they i think in the opening scene where someone has to watch it and, and remind us but but in the opening scene he's talking about the cabin and and maybe I'm wrong but I think he was saying that they were he rented from some from some guy well yeah of course because then on the second one actually is Knobby's the professor knobby that is the guy that was researching the book so. So he, I don't think he was rented from him, but anyways, like we, you know, it's a rabbit hole. You'll never stop falling it if you start <laughs> trying to search all the details, but uh, they can be, re- they, it. it is the same timeline. And yes, there was an idea that they might be, they might be related.
0: Amazing. This is amazing. This movie has some incredible, gory, practical effects. You know, I was really shocked when the behind the scenes videos were leaked online to find out that, for example, Dead Eye Mia, uh, the tongue cutting scene was an actual prosthetic being cut by an electric knife or the arm cutting scene for example were these stunt doubles performing these scenes or was it jane livy herself uh, wearing the prosthetics while being cut
1: oh it was the actors yeah yeah. i mean those they were all miserable during the making of it it was just so hard (laughs) it was it was a very long shoot for starters we uh, i think it helped to the quality uh, for a first-time filmmaker to have enough days to do it uh, that's a great thing. Uh, so I was thank. Yeah, I was really grateful to Sam Raimi and Rob Tapper to give me enough days to do it. But, but it was it, it, my approach again. The you know the the more you learn, the less you know. My at that time, my whole thing was hey, like the good visual effects are the ones that are real. That's it. Forget about it. Like there's no, you know. And that was the peak. Also, of the CG blood, the CG special effects. It was you know started to be really annoying and looking really bad because people were doing those gags very cheap and fast and uh, and my whole thing was like we're not gonna do it like that we're just gonna do it for real and, uh, no, and he, I was kind of lonely uh, uh, on that thought even that back then because you know Sam supported but I remember like the rest of the producer was like it's just gonna be too expensive and it kind of looks the same and I was like it does not look the same <laughs> it just definitely does not look the same so in particularly doing organic things in VFX it would have been know, just a mess so so it would end up in a, <laughs> it was, what was really messy was to do it for real. But for instance, the ones that we, when uh, Natalie chops her arm off, the, so I think uh, recently, I don't know if I posted a photo of that, but uh, it was basically, it, in a lot of this was me and, and, and David Murray, the guy that did all the special effects, like trying to figure out together, like digging in and figuring out how we're going to do this thing without, uh, without visual effects, just doing an, all, everything in camera. And um, and we figured out that, you know, for the cutting of the arm we had, it's very ex- hard to explain in words, but we had a, an actor playing the hand in a way that is sitting right behind the, the, the actress. That's a double is that playing the hand and is hiding kind of inside the cabinets of the kitchen, sticking her arm out. So the real arm of the actor is like. Asleep behind her, like just like it's tucked in there, and then there's a prosthetic piece that just connects the two bodies and makes it look like one body. So the prosthetic piece is what she cuts, and she's cutting it with a real knife, with a real uh, you know a turkey carver, and uh, and the and the prosthetic is rigged with a pipe that is pumping blood. The same amount that the heart is. So it's in, 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 in pressure. So when she cuts through that thing, just the amount of blood is jumping everywhere. It was like, what I want to reproduce is like, what happens if, if you actually do that? So it was an actual mess. And I think we even increased the pressure because I loved, uh, I mean, one of the, I, one of the references was a lot of Japanese cinema and uh, and and stuff like that. I just you know Takeshi Miike movies and like you know, where the blood is flows like crazy. So it was trying to make those explosions of blood that you see even more in anime than in than in than in movies. Like like when you know in anime if you've seen any violent anime, it's always like. There's a cut that there's like a splatter of blood that is just a beautiful <laughs> <Yeah>. explosion. So <laughs> wow. we want to do that. So so <laughs> it, imagine the that took one shot. We did two takes, and it was a full day of work just to for two takes because once you reset it, you know what what we call the reset. When after you have done one take and you want to reset everything to the beginning, so you can do it again, it took hours um, because you have to take the prosthetic out of the actor. But imagine an actor and the uh, the actor had to sit, uh, sit there. For the whole day, twelve hours sitting there, she couldn't go away. She had to eat there, like so. It was a kind of a torture that you can only do with young actors and new actors, like, <laughs> because in you know, any actor that made a couple movies, they're gonna go like, "Fuck no, nah, I'm not staying there all day." Yeah. So gonna, like, <laughs> bring the visual right. effects, give me the visual right. effects. You can do this in post. You don't have, you don't need me to be there all day. They, they're gonna, they're gonna make it impossible for you to to do it that way. So, so that was special about that movie. Also, like everybody was game to go with the craziest. Routes to to really deliver a, a moment to the audience, and the, the same with the tongue. The tongue was the tongue was it wasn't that painful. It was just embarrassing. Just you know, while you, you came up with all this plan of having this tongue inside of her mouth that she's biting on this prosthetic, and and she has to kind of move it. I mean, all that sounds great, but once the actor is there, you have to be rolling for many many minutes uh, trying to get those. Ten frames is the one that we use in the movie that looks okay. The rest looks like you're puppeteering a piece of rubber that is inside her mouth. It looks looks like shit. There there is something I'm I'm waiting to I'm gonna release that someday. Like I have the day because I have a hard drive here with all the dailies, so everything I shot for that movie. I still have it. So it's easy for me to pull takes and trying to find the uh, the bad moments <laughs> of that movie. But you know, it, it will ruin the movie for some people if you suddenly see that that level of uh, behind the scenes. But it was uh it was it was really an effort and and it was a lot of ingenuity and inventions of you know, special effects stuff that had never been done before. And we had to come up with ideas to do it um, in order to pull those off on camera. It was great. It's a lot more work. It, that, that's what it is. And that's why usually people don't do it. It's just a lot more work. It's sometimes it's more money. It's not going to be as cheap as doing you know, a VFX than any, you know, anybody can do very quickly. Um, but I think that's why it stayed with people because the, the people can tell definitely the the difference between the, the, the you know, the computer VFX and the, and the real thing.
2: The Boo Crew will be right back. On December 18th, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children moved into a house in Amityville, Long Island. Nineteen days later, they were running for their lives. What happened to them became one of the best-selling books in years and is now a fascinating motion picture. An experience in terror to make you believe in the unbelievable, the Amityville Horror. from American International Rated R under 17, not admitted without parents. Ooh.
3: Also heard there was a alternative ending that nobody has seen. Is there any truth to this? And can we yes. see uh, it if it is true?
1: There's two uh, two endings that no one has uh, have seen. I mean, <gasps> one, one of them. I mean, there's technically three. One of uh, the the original ending was only in the pay- well. Actually, we shot some of it. The original ending, ending, like the original movie. Uh, Jane was gonna walk out of the house, she started limping away from the house, and suddenly the force, and uh, that's uh, you know, how you call the crazy camera running through the woods, the force will come out of the house, just not like the original movie, she will turn around, scream, and that will be it, and that will be the end of it. But on the script, what we did, we wrote, we went a little bit further and we say, well, you know, that's what we saw in the original movie, so I think we should, have, we should see more this time, so we'll do the shot, and then after she turns and screams, we'll see what happened to her. So she was going to be, it was written as she levitates for the first time because you never see levitation in the movie. It was kind of the rules of Evil Dead, like never see, for our Evil Dead, never see anything that that tells you right away you're in a supernatural world so no one floats on Evil Dead Um, but but we were saying well in the last moment she will float so she will float suddenly her body was all tensed up like very exorcist style and start floating and then We're going to rip her apart like every limb or something like that. So it was going to be, she was going to explode in this, like, like this bomb of blood. So, so that, that was what we wrote. And then Sam Raimi, uh, uh, you know, he's a wise guy and he, and he, he said, you know, he was also more sensitive to the character and the experience of the audience. And what he said was like, look guys, I think she deserves to die. She, She deserves to live after everything she's been through. I think the audience is going to want her to live. It will be unfair that we just pull something out just out of her hat, and we say, "Well, now she dies." And uh, I was like, "Well, that's all you did. That's what you did originally." He was like, "Well, I didn't think Ash deserved to live." So, so we, so that's what we did, and um, so we we changed that, and, and we said, "Okay, well, she should live," and that was the ending you see on the movie. Now, now there's another cut of the movie the extended cut that you can actually. I think it's been uh, available for for a few for a couple of years now. On the extended cut, you see uh, the kind of the alternative. That wasn't the end. It was an extension that you will see. You see uh, what you actually see on the extended version is Mia collapsing on the road and someone picks her up and uh, and uh, and will push on her eyes. She opens her eyes and it ends. And they kind of leave it open to like, well, maybe, you know, the the presence, the demon and the book just lives on with her and just stays inside her and we'll see where that goes. So we did that ending but the true story, and I, I don't think I ever told this story before, but basically the true story was I wanted Bruce Campbell to be that guy. I wanted Ash to be the guy that picks her up. And we shot it in a way that I that was going to eventually go to Miami where Bruce was shooting Burn Notice, his show. And I was like, OK, let's replace the shots where we have an actor that did it on the day. Let's replace that actor with you. So I shot it in a way that it was very simple for me to get Bruce and and get it to do that uh, that cameo at the end. But then Bruce was like, I just don't... And he was totally right. He was like, I, I just felt like it's just going to be like, oh, and I'm the milkman that just show up. It's just like no one they show up. And I think that's that's not special. And, um, and he was totally right because we, it was very hard to give a real reason why Ash will show up. You know, it was complete coincidence that Ash will going to drive by and, and find that Mia, like a dying Mia. So, so he decided not to do it. I did do a mock-up of it. I remember like, and I have to find out what I put... Bruce's face is like just like just glue it on the guy's face just to show Bruce an idea what the scene will be. So there's a version of that ending with Bruce's face just like glued to it with a smile, like being being that truck driver. Um, So so that was the second ending in a way. The the second is the one that you you actually can see. The third one would have been the version with Bruce, and uh, and and then obviously what what we end up having, it was the version where you know what the, the the we end up having bruce in the movie as you know on the credits that was something so simple like we were I, I had because i had bruce that was very reluctant to do anything like that uh, i was i had him with him with me all the time while we were doing uh sound design for the movie bruce loved sound design so he was he was sitting with me throughout the whole editing of the the mix of the movie so so one day I just show up with a, with a very small like camera. And I was like, come with me, Bruce. And I had like a 5D, and I just put him inside the studio. I put the camera there. I, light, I took the lamp from my desk. I, I put it behind him and another one in front of him. He was like, what the fuck are we doing? And I was like, I, I, we're doing your cameo in the movie. <laughs> it's like, you killed I like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you're cameo in the movie. You're going to be standing there, and, and you're just going to look at me for a second. He's going to say, Groovy. And he was like, well, okay. <laughs> and I was like, what does that mean? And I am like, well, it means you exist in this world and you've been aware of what's going on. And uh, and we'll explain later why. And and then and he was like, okay, I'm game for that. And, and we did that with just my shitty camera and some desk lamp. We shot what is that shot at the end of Bruce, you know, fading in and turning around and saying groovy. So, so it was a very low budget <laughs> shot uh, that we that we managed to put in the movie, and 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 I think really, you know, it was it was really exciting uh, when when we premiered the movie, and I you know I went to see it a few times in theaters here and there. When people walk out of the movie before it was it, it was before it spread online that Bruce will show up at the end, people didn't know, so it was the credits. People will walk out, and then suddenly he will show up, and there will be like five people in the theaters. In the theater and those people would go bananas like trying to scream yeah. to their friends "I have left, come back, come back! And they just missed it. It was just, I wanted to be so sure that you blink, you miss it. So, so it was, I saw so many people running out to try to drag their friends back in and missing the beat because they ran out. Like, so it was super, super fun thing to do. But, but basically, those, those were the endings. So the, the one that I the the one that I that I do have, and I I'm I'm always uh, trying to find a time to do that. Is 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 I do shot. I did I did the shot of the camera, the force running through the house, popping out on the other side behind Jane. Jane turning around and screaming, just like Bruce did in the original. So I do have that and. One day I'm going to finish it, just put some music in it and just release that, that shot. Just, oh, just gonna that'd be, be so great.
3: Yes, be great oh. during this quarantine to yeah. watch. Yeah. Get yes. us through yeah. it. Yeah.
1: Exactly. exactly. Yes. Yes, I was curious,
0: were the cast character names chosen specifically, or were the names coincidental? Because if you take the first letters of the main characters, David, Eric, Mia, Olivia,
1: Natalie. Spells out the word demon. Oh, believe me, I know. is is no coincidence when when we start thinking about how we're going <laughs> to name them. We we said, "Oh, they have to spell something," and uh, and we thought, "Well, she spelled demon, so easy." So we go, "Okay, D," and uh, you know. We, you know, it's a kind of quick way to come up with names, <laughs> so, so that's that's why <laughs> it nice. know it's never mentioned in the movie, <laughs> but people picked up on, on, on it eventually, and I, you know, but it was definitely the intention from the beginning. We
4: always that's so awesome. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the the Naturum Demanto, your version of the Necronomicon and the design of it. Yeah, well, there was,
1: and again, like one of the things where at the time, I think there was a there was a rights issue or something like that uh, that I they couldn't agree. Rob and Sam and the guy that designed the original book, they couldn't agree on rights to use the face on the book, anything like that. So I don't know. You know, those those are friendships that go back so many years that whatever, you know, I wouldn't get into any of those. So whatever was happening between them, who knows? But they did. I don't know if they, they did agree or what was the deal. But they basically, Rob Tapper told me, just you know, just come up with your own. And, uh, you know, and it felt like, well, you know, maybe the original deteriorate then and, uh, and that face, you know, its flesh that 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 would have turned into some hard, you know, some sort of leather that maybe deteriorate and someone put a new face on it. Someone put some new skin on it. So we we didn't do the face. We just did that kind of sk- stitches on it. And uh, I still have it. I have it on my office, that book. And I, uh, it's mm. it's pretty impressive uh, work the the makeup guys did, um, the special effects guy did, and it uh, it was you know b- the, the big idea in the book that I love that ours have that uh that is, that is written on that was a <laughs> you had the story of everybody had encountered it and trying to help the next victims of it putting re- uh, writings like trying to figure out what it is. In a very pedestrian, mundane way, like scratching the words—that It's obvious that someone would have tried to do that, just scratch the words on, so, no, so no one can say them. Uh, all that—that that, that was a big idea. I was I was I was very happy with when we had that breakthrough. That was—it wasn't going to be just a bunch of drawings and some witchcraft book, but also it was going to have the human element of just the human experience of people that have been. Victims of the book, and uh, I, you know, you, you get glimpses of that in the movie when Eric is uh, Eric is pointing at them. Every time you see a hand in the movie pointing at some text, it's actually my my fingers. <laughs> oh, cool! Oh, that's yeah, I do awesome. a lot of those, I love, a lot of those things. There's a bunch of those. Every time there's a close-up, I used to do. I don't do them these days, but. I I used to do that, and that movie particularly was uh, it takes so much time, you know, to, the little close-ups and to, to get it right, to, to so to be behind the camera telling people no left uh up, up down like till down just move the finger quicker do it again just flip up it's like oh you know what let me do it and so <laughs> it was, so we I just had a camera I remember like on the it was the last day of shooting and it was we had like three cameras running simultaneously three camera units running simultaneously on the set just to get the, the cleanup. It was a cleanup day. It was just like, let's get all those inserts that we'd never had time to do during the making of the movie. And so it was me with an Eric shirt covered with my arms covered in blood and uh, running around in a wig. Also like running around from one set to another, trying to get all the details here and there, hand, the way the a way hand opens something, the way the hand closes something, the way, all that. It was just me, me being very obsessive about how I should be and doing it all myself. In the movie, every, every time you see a uh, the the hands on the book, uh, that those are my hands.
3: How many books were made?
1: I think there's two. I think there's, there's definitely two that are um, full books. I have one of them and I have no clue who has the other one.
4: Interesting how that stuff just vanishes.
1: <laughs> they do because on the last day, everybody wants to leave. So so the, the moment you wrap, everybody's like, thank God, it just wants to walk away and no one picks anything up. So I, I tend to be... Weary of that and go like, wait, wait, wait. and I run to the prop truck and I try to make sure I get something. I always get some uh, props from my movie. This oh
3: my kid. gosh okay we'll talk later I want to know what you have from Don't Breathe but. oh
1: yeah, yeah we'll get to guess. Don't Breathe it's a very easy we'll guess we'll get to what you have I have one thing from Don't Breathe <laughs> the only thing that you need to have
4: oh I know what that oh, is yes what else
1: the cleaning lady keeps cleaning it and put it on the kitchen in my office and I have to put it on my desk again and like she doesn't understand why the fuck I have a turkey baster <laughs> on my desk <laughs> that's awesome that's amazing
4: again like I know you've been asked this is a million times, but the talk of a, of a sequel, the talk of teaming up Mia with Ash in a sequel, all this stuff is that something that you think is ever going to happen? Is that out of your system at this point?
1: No, it's not out of my system. I mean, look, it, it was at the time when we were done with the first one. We right away start writing a sequel. I mean, thinking about what the sequel is going to be, and uh, we we all agree it, it was going to happen. We so uh, Rhoda and I started thinking about it. We had the full story, and then and then basically it was strange. It was basically we the whole intention was to do that to team team them up. There's actually a photo I took of Bruce and Jane together on at Comic Con we went to promote the the Blu-ray release, and I took a photo of them together. It was great. And uh, we you know, we, that was always the 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 goal, but I think Sam had different uh, goals. Sam wanted to have Bruce back for the show, for the TV show that came out uh, a few years after that. So it was kind of a it was complex to make the movie at the time. And whatever mythology we're going to create with them, it would have been complicated for the show because they want to kind of... Sam has his own ideas of what have happened with the character of Ash, and he wanted to tell that story. So that's why the time ended up not happening. And then through the years, look, I'm, I'm really good friends with Sam and Rob, and um, I'm always in touch with them. We, I mean, we made more movies together, and, and, and we... It's always a discussion. Right now, they, I know they have different plans. They they are doing a. I was been announced already. They are doing their own. I don't know if, what state of uh, stage of uh, of development or production is that, but they were they were going to do another one that is not a direct sequel to my movie, as far as I know. And so it, it, we'll see. It's one of the things that it, it has to. We need to have come up one day with the right story. I think the one that we had originally wouldn't make much sense. It's also a clash of tones, but I think that that I like that you know my movies is a certain tone, and I think the movies where Ash is is on they're different tone they're more slapstick and and Bruce has he, Bruce is Bruce and there's no way to stop that so so you know you will never try to go against that so how do you combine them well i I think that's an interesting question I think that's something to see but um it's never is never out of my system, I think because. Usually, the more movies you make, they always you always gotta go. You always want to go back to the first love and how you made movies back then, and and try to recapture that spirit. And you know, which is really hard because life's changed and my life is different now than it was, you know, when I made that movie, uh, what seven years ago now. And um, so you know, it's but it's it's there. I mean, I don't want to say I'll do it one day because then there's a headline somewhere say saying I'll do it, and and I never want to play with people, you know, expectations of it. But uh, but so so far at least they have other plans, uh, you know, which is good. They 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 are making one. They know they're about to make one. So they they gotta make a new one. They have a young new director. That you know, who, who knows? Maybe he'll blow us all away and make an, an amazing Evil Dead, and then we want a sequel to that one. So I think we have to give that person a chance and and see what that that, that turned out to be. Because as far as I know. Everybody's very, very, everybody on the team and, you know, Bruce and Sam and Rob, There, everybody's very excited about, about that take and that filmmaker.
4: That's very awesome. So you went on to make 2016's Don't Breathe, which was so fun. We are all huge, massive fans of that film. We all saw it together. Yeah. And Lorne and I became so obsessed with it. We, we tracked down everything we could from the movie. We, we have a few props from Don't Breathe here at the house. And then we went back and saw it with the props. And then we went back and saw it again. I think with my parents, we took my parents to see. It. We just hadn't seen anything like that movie before. We ended up with one of uh, Stephen Lang's outfits uh, oh, covered yeah. in blood, and then uh, the keys that the kids use with the buttons on it to to try and escape the house the first time. <laughs>
1: How do you get that? Huh? <laughs> the, they,
4: act, they, they ended up, they ended up auctioning off at some, some prop house, like some prop reseller. ended up getting a few things from
1: don't breathe. That's pretty interesting. That's fun. Yeah.
4: Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, so just coming up with the concept of that film, how, how did you, how did you build that idea?
1: Well, it, it was quite quick. We were, you know, that day. And I was mentioning with the, when I took the photo of Bruce and Jane together and at Comic-Con, well, the same day, It was the day that Rhoda and I, we realized, you know, it was the first time we met our Evil Dead audience in a way. So because, you know, when the movie comes out, you go to the screenings, but there's not a... Fan base, yeah, it's just people that are watching the movie for the first time. Maybe by the end of the movie, they loved it, but you are you to call them fans. But you know, by the time the Blu Ray came out, if it's been a few months. The Blu Ray comes out, people actually want it. They, you know, they pretty much they you can say well, they're fans of the movie. They want to buy it. So it's like uh, so for the first time, we we're shaking hands and and chatting, uh, you know, talking to the panel and meeting people that that really like the movie. So we we're like, well, there's, there's an audience out there that actually cares about you know what we've done and. Um, and, and a lot of the questions were, well, what are you going to do next in horror? Like, what they, they you know, they want to see another horror movie from us. So we felt responsible. We felt we have to give them that movie. What could that be? because at the time I was thinking, well, am I going to do a horror movie again? Like, I want to try something different was probably saying. So, but you know, we met that audience. We met some, some fans there in, in San Diego. Everybody was very excited. So we thought well, that's cool. We should thought about something. And, uh, I think Roto had drove to San Diego, had took the train with my wife. And, um, and then we said, well, you know what, well, let's just drive back to Los Angeles together. And, uh, and on the drive from San Diego to Los Angeles, my wife was remember she was she she fell asleep in the back. So it's a very exciting conversation. But brother and I were in the front and we were just like chatting. It was like hey, what are, that could what, what could that be? What would that movie like? Um, a sequel, you know, not a sequel, but another one, something that we follow up. And we gave. This 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 people here that like that like the play what could that be and, um, and we started thinking and by the time we we made it to Los Angeles that's quite a, you know with some traffic this is like a three hour drive or something by the time we made it back here we had kind of the basics of don't breed we had the whole idea and it started from nothing we had absolutely nothing the only thing I had was something my wife had said and she you know we, she was watching it's the weird uh, maybe get into too much detail but we. We had seen Fright Night together, the remake, and there's a moment when the kid goes inside the house, of uh, Colin Farrell's house, and he's trying to get upstairs to see if he has his girlfriend there or will we'll find her. And my wife said, oh, fuck, there's nothing scarier for me in any fucking movie that when someone walks in someone else's house. Like, it just doesn't matter what it is, if it's horror, whatever the genre is, it's always the scariest moment. We're just sneaking around... And, and they're not in their place. So I was like, huh, that's interesting, because it's true, I mean, we, I, and, and, and I was, uh, my co-writer and I, we're always pretty philosophical when it comes to horror and writing. We, we always think, we try to go to, what's the primal fears that humanity have? We, we try to, we start there before we think about any character story, which is so, what, what, what is the primal fear we're gonna be exploding? What, what is the thing that we're gonna use in our advantage to scare the shit out of the audience? And, and and my wife had said that, and and I was like, that's an interesting one, like a. Because it's kind of the violation of private property. It, the fact that it doesn't matter the genre it is, it means that as soon as it, in any drama and any cop movie, anything like, we suddenly go, "Hello, hello!" and you and you knock on the door and no one opens. And you, and you know, in movies, people walk in anyways. Like no one will ever fucking do in real life, but they walk in, "Hello!" and they just start walking in through the house. It's always terrifying for many reasons, but one of the main uh, strange reasons is that it's it's you witnessing the violation of private property that just you know really messes with you because we we. Take that for granted that if it's your house no one's going to walk in that's it that's the only thing we have for sure and safe that this is my place that I rent or bought and and, and 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 you don't cross the line of the main door and that's it. So when people do it without the permit of the owners it's just something that unholy about it so that combined with whatever happening inside and also combined with the real laws where you can might get shot by doing so it always makes it very tense. So that's all we had going on for us and um, we had that idea that we knew that was a very deep primal fear that ha- obviously had been exploited in, 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 in any home invasion movie, in the home invasion genre that had, actually at the time that had been quite a, a a few of those, but we knew we didn't want to do one of those. So it's like how do you exploit that without doing just a home invasion movie? And and what my wife was saying, she was saying she wasn't saying like when you when she sees someone getting invaded. She says that when I when I'm with the characters that break into the house. When I'm with the characters that are actually doing the break in. So that's that was the interesting thing. And that's how we start, okay, maybe the maybe the, the, the main characters are robbers. Okay, good. when they're real robbers, good we, we can we can do that. So why is it gonna be exciting and and and, and that's where we start building from and um and uh and the, the idea of the blind man just came out of nowhere. It was just one of the things that so, I think I said, what if he's blind? And I was reaching out for the cinematic. Well, how, am I, how How do I make this cinematic and not just so mundane and pedestrian that, that is just too bleak? Uh, so the, the the I felt and I think that you feel that in the movie. And I think that's the way we perceive. Blindness is such a hard thing to transmit. Like a, a visually impaired person is really... A, it's almost impossible to make you understand what it feels to to live your life like that. So that so so we thought there's some magic to it. There's some there's a magic to it that will take away from the bleakness and make it almost fantastical and magic. And I, and I thought it was cool, like to, to just. um Using uh, that disability to suddenly create a world that it a lot of it happens in your head because you cannot know exactly what the what the the character of the blind man is experiencing. So anyway, so we basically came up with the whole most of it uh, on the drive back, and then we show, and, then, and then we spec'd it. We just started writing. We you know, we we wrote it without selling to anybody or pitching anything like that. We didn't want to do any of that because we didn't want to be influenced by anybody or anything. Uh, we wrote it on a vacuum just uh, my writer and I we we it was insane it was one of the things I even thought for a while I wasn't really gonna direct it because I thought it's just too crazy I'll just give the problem someone else and um and then you know we fell in love with it and we felt like nah you know i just just gonna make this movie and also like in reality I had had burned all the bridges that all the doors that Hollywood had opened for me with Evil Dead, I had burned them all at that point because I, I you know, usually you make a movie is number one in the world and then you get all these offers for all the studios to make the big franchises and I and I knew I didn't want to do any of that. So we had passed on all the on all the bigger movies and we were left with our own devices. We were like, Okay, we're gonna have to come up with something on our own and um and we had Don't breed and I was like, Oh let's just do this. It was called Men in the Men in the in the dark at the time and uh, and we had Men in the Dark and we said, like oh, let was Let's go for this. And, uh, and, that's, and that's when we brought uh, the same team. We we called Sam and we said, like, do you want to make another movie together? We, we have the script. Sam loved it. I think he was the only one that kind of really loved it on that side. The rest were like, oh, this is so bizarre. And uh, everybody was trying to kill the turkey baster and all that. It was just, it just feels like, <laughs> feel like insane in the, in, the, <laughs> right. in the screen. You can't even imagine how it looks, how it reads when you're suddenly reading that he's taking a turkey right. baster. <laughs> dripping come, it's just so, so you go like what are they doing what they doing? it's just i'm supposed to laugh at this i'm supposed to be serious but but anyways it, it really was uh um, it was serious it was uh it was actually our, we were trying to make it less bleak against what i was saying i think of the original concept he would he just wanted to have a kid again you know i mean spoiler mean, spoiler alert you haven't seen the movie but that's the Obviously, the the goal of the of the bad guy—he's just trying to get back what he's been taking from him—and we thought, well, you know, we don't want to see a rape, uh, just an old-fashioned rape. Let's just come up with a, some more cinematic perverse sort of rape in the movie. It was actually how, that's how, you know, it's just based on research, that if you're a single lady you want to have a kid at home, uh, that's actually how you do it. I'm not making this up, it's actually, that's how I took it from. I just did research on how you do a homemade insemination and, and they still say, you know, you, do, you go to the sperm bank and then you have some alone time, some, you know, with yourself. And some music, and you have a turkey baster. <laughs> so, uh, wow! Literally, that, that's what I read in some medicine uh, blog. Like, just you know, it doesn't have to be gross. You know, just make <laughs> make it sexy. So, anyways, so right. that's, uh, so that's so that's basically how the whole uh, per- perverted idea came out out of just medical uh, blogs that explain how to do it at home.
4: And then that shot with the the the, the drip on the turkey baster as he's walking towards Shane's character is unbelievable
1: <laughs> was that was that was that set up to drip or did you add that in no it was set up it did for real i mean we we were we were really working on our consistency of the sperm it was um we had uh, a <laughs> We had our uh, our prop guy, a prop master, like uh, working on it. I remember, like you know, we were shooting. Hungry. He was working on so it. So the <laughs> guy comes in. He comes with like three different samples of uh, of spurt. Uh, he starts showing me, you know, with a little stick how they drip, the consistency. So so suddenly everybody on set is around it, just having an opinion of what looks real and what doesn't, right? <laughs> it's magic. but you realize that everybody had different opinions. Like and men had different kind of consistencies of I don't know. Like everybody was like that's. Know how it looks. And someone was like, well, that's exactly how it looks. And so it was everybody uh, judging and um, the consistency of that. And I remember the guy said like, well, I took a recipe from my friends in porn industry. So it's correct.
2: He's like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> so guy,
1: those guys might know the the, the Hungarian like porn industry, they, they've been working on this for a while. So they, they gave us the recipe for the, for the fake sperm. We got very few notes on the cut when once we were done with the movie. We were lucky that we had producers that support us. But one of the notes, there used to be two drips, like two long drips. And I think I remember it was, the <laughs> note was like, two is overkill. Two is one too many. So we need just one. So that's why there's just one in the movie. There used to be another one right before he was... Going to insert it, in and uh, and that oh was my that, God. That was, God. God. It was good. It was a good call because it was just too much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one it was all you need. But it's it, like I tell you, it's it's something shocking uh, about the humanity that one. You know, when I was watching the movie for the first time with an audience, it, you know, and I still have that recording, I have the the audience recording. You know, when you get the audience reaction, right? So you do the test screening, and and you have a, a night vision camera recording. Which is hilarious. So I should release that one day. Like, you you get it just, I did a compilation of all the scares just to see how people react to the jump scares and and, and the moments. And, uh, you know, I shot someone in the face. That's fine. People kind of go, huh. I see blood running. It's fine. They see one drop of sperm, everyone lose their shit. He's just like <laughs> the whole theater went down. Like they were screaming, going bananas, like people you know, gagging like they're gonna throw up. It, it, well, imagine once she drives it down his throat and he starts choking on the sperm yeah. that moment after. <laughs> people were losing their shit like you know I, I heard stories of people fainting like it was like come on like the blood doesn't do anything but that drives you mad there's nothing It's <laughs> a <This is> sperm <laughs> but apparently I don't know either in the United States she's a very proud of a prude society or like I don't know but it, it, it I remember always being shocked but like huh like it's interesting like a little taboo there and they all lose their shit but blood killing murder stabbing they didn't even flinch <laughs> too and then, funny wow you know,
4: what about the design? I mean, you designed that house so that as a viewer we're like, "Oh shit, there's there's a way out." Nope, not a way out anymore. Uh, you know, how about this door? Nope. You've designed this kind of labyrinthian maze of a house where any way out is fear fucked. How long did you spend on on actually setting that piece up?
1: It was a lot of work, uh, but uh, yeah, Neiman Marshall is a production designer in that movie, and a lot of we work very really close together to figure that out. I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is all about um, it's all about the storytelling, and and a movie like that that lives or die by by you supporting every choice the characters make. Um, You know, like the classic, uh, don't run upstairs you know, in a horror movie, and then the the main door is open and and they decide to run upstairs. You know, that classic moment, they go like, what the fuck are they doing? Why are they doing that? And you you (laughs) gotta lose the audience. A lot of the cat and mouse movies like this one, it's all, you know, the, the, the ones that really succeed are the ones that whatever the characters are doing, you support it. You go like, yes, go, go, go there. Right, perfect. And then you realize, oh, no, boy, you should have done gone there. So you realize that it, you would have died in that situation yourself. And that's what really makes it scary. So so it was kind of, it, the whole house was kind of reverse engineered to kind of fit the story. So we knew, we actually did like a chessboard board on, uh, on paper and we had later action figures to play the characters and we were like, going you know, to put them on the table and say okay well she the blind man comes from downstairs that means these characters the, the, the two of them are like this he up killing this guy so the only place you can actually naturally go is backwards that will get her inside the closet. Then the other guys come from the kitchen. And so we if, if there was a wall or there was another wall, a door that she could have escaped from, that the audience was going to escape, say, just take that door, we'll get rid of that door. We just erase it when it was on paper, which is, okay, there's not a door here anymore. Or the stairs, or we move the stairs to a different place. We really had to build the whole house to make sure that, that every decision the characters made were very instinctive and, and, and not forced. Uh, because that's, again, every time you see characters making choices that you go why are they doing that like that's when you start losing the audience and you can do a few of those but if you do too many then the audience feels like they cannot trust the 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 main characters and they just feel betrayed by the story the story's real force so so that was the whole challenge was to really make sure that uh, we we had a house that fit the 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 maze that was perfect for the story that we wanted to tell you achieved this really unique whited out night vision
4: look that and really I've never seen before during one of the most intense sequences even the actor's pupils are dilated but you, you can see it's a beautiful look did you guys come up with that look
1: yeah yeah it was a lot of research uh, you know Pedro Luque the guy that I did at my DP that we did Panic Attack together you know he didn't do Evil Dead because I was just scared too scared at the time I think to to propose to bring my own team usually the first time when you're a first time director just saying yes to whatever team you have you just want to make the movie I remember like we, we should have made that one together but but anyway, you know Aaron Morton was amazing anyways in that movie he made it, he made it look great but um but on uh, on on don't breed I was like okay next time I'll bring everybody that I want to work with that I work in the past that I want to make movies with um, so I brought Pedro uh, that we were working together and stuff into the work 20. so we start thinking you know how are we gonna do that um it was never been done before really that way there's there's obviously you had scenes like uh, you know Buffalo Bill at the basement and, and silence of the lambs that, that have the night vision, but that is because someone has a device, right? Like he has a little camera. And uh, it's, so the times you've seen that or like in Paranormal Activities movies, there's supposed to be a camera involved in the, in the situation that is a night vision camera. And that's why the audience see the scene the other way here we no one had a camera so we were like how are we going to do this like how are we going to tell a story that's a scene that is in full darkness so at first you start with like well maybe there's some light you know coming from filtering through some you know floorboards upstairs uh you start going there but it's just then you have the whole audience squinting and not seeing anything it's just you just get scared out of the sounds and not really what you're seeing so it doesn't last long so we felt how can we really show them what's happening there? Like, you know, fully show them what's happening. And uh, so we decided, oh, well, let's just quote the the night vision look. Let's just create our own night vision look. without having a night vision camera. And basically, we did a few tricks there. Um, there, was, uh, there was a lot of little details involved that made it look legit. I mean, in one part, the actors had like uh, uh, lenses that make their pupils dilated. Uh, they had like, you know, like contact lenses that those lenses all didn't allow them to see much. So they were when pretended to be fully blind. They couldn't see much in that, in those light conditions. And, um, and then there was a light. Kind of coming from the camera, uh, and there was some post-processing done, like where you basically take the darkest part of the of the camera, of the, the darkest part of the spectrum of, of colors, you make them brighter, and the brightest stuff you make it darker. So that's how you create that kind of strange look. But it, it, you know, it's a it's a it's a, it's a it's one of my favorite scenes that I ever done, like because it was so unique, and it also the the ability to, to be brave enough to say, well, and now the movie is going to cut to black and white <laughs> from now on. It, the movie goes black and white. Like those are choices that after the after the fact, they sound like, oh well, it's okay, it's not a big deal. But at first, when you're thinking about it, the audience the usually producers everybody's like, are you really gonna cut the black and white suddenly? But uh it's a great moment you know? and and then seeing the blind man navigate in that space with such an ability is also the whole idea of the movie and why being blind like made the whole thing. You know, really click, and uh, you realize who who is the uh, you know who is the one with the handicap. They become the ones that are not right. able to to navigate the darkness. Their their own all, own ability becomes a disability, and shown in certain environments, he's gonna be way capable that they could ever be. So it was a combination of suddenly witnessing a look and suddenly witnessing an idea and a concept that you didn't see every day, and uh, that that I'm, I'm super proud of that scene. I love it.
4: The choreography that goes into a lot of that, too, because they're narrowly it's like a dance, right? All the actors are narrowly missing the blind man character. There's other scenes in the hallways on the main floor where they're just barely missing each other. Was that was that a rehearsed thing? And how how do you do that while maintaining the element of surprise that the performers have to get in order to capture those? Those uh, moments.
1: I don't remember. I mean, I think we probably rehearsed some of those. I, I, I'm not. A, I'm not big in rehearsals. Uh, I, I'm, I really love the thrill of figuring it out on the day. So, uh, it's a lot of the things that kind of we there. I kind of you know. I wrote it, so I know the story by heart. I know what I'm not have to. What, what I'm, when I started and what I'm supposed to end. And uh, how do we get them? A lot of it is also a good collaboration with your actors. Sometimes you have an idea and the actors go like, oh, I would never instinctively do that. This is what I would do. And um, so you end up creating the choreography. But uh, to give you an example, I mean, there's one of my favorite shots in the movie as well. is like that um, that shot that introduces the house. You know, when the kids enter the house for the first time and there's a there's a long tracking shot that shows... Not only is a Warner that doesn't cut, but that doesn't matter these days. It's more about the. It introduces most of the elements that are going to take a big part in the movie. So you see the hammer, you see the lock on the wall, you see the little bell on the hallway. A lot of things that you don't know where they are, but the audience knows. They should remember them. They know they will take a part in it. So it was a way of making the movie, make the audience part of the movie, like from the get go, telling them like, "Hey, pay attention to all these things. A lot of things are going to go down here in this house. There's a game about to start." So take this are some of the this is the landscape and go. So that shot it wasn't gonna be like, like that. I think it was scripted as like, you know, different kind of shots that maybe you were gonna see or not see those elements. It was I don't think it was scripted as you see the hammer, you see that, you see this at all. But uh, and it was it was gonna do it in one afternoon. And I think during lunch I was just having my lunch walking around an empty set and I and I said, oh, Maybe this I can do this on a Warner, and I because we're you know, I felt that was the right thing. I did it on my phone on my own. And then started realizing, ah, it's actually cool if you actually see the f- hammer here and see the log and see the things. And, uh, and so design a shot to reveal all those elements. And then by the time people were working back from lunch, I was like, hey, I had this idea. What do you think? And, uh, and, and that's what I ended up doing. So sometimes those things, they, I, I just like the thrill of that, uh, to having to figure it out and keep it fresh. Too much, too much planning. Uh, I just feel like I'm going to work.
3: What is the significance of the combination on the blind man's safe? That number code? Does it mean (laughs)
1: anything? Yeah, yeah, it is. What is the code? Is it my birthday?
3: It's like two, nine, seven, eight.
1: <laughs> Seventy eight. Yeah, yeah. So I'm February nine, seven, eight. That's my birthday. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Aw, I
3: love February birthdays. That's me.
1: It's, it's always in <laughs> every is... movie I tell you. Every combination is someone's birthday. It's like the DP, the AD, the director. It's like <laughs> the, the production designer. Usually it's the, 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 the writer's kid's. His birthday, is, so it's so it's like someone's birthday.
4: I I know we we don't want to keep it all day, but I really wanted to ask about the fact that you directed an episode of the From Dust Till Dawn TV series. When did you first meet Robert Rodriguez?
1: It was on it was on uh, on Austin in Austin when uh, we premiered Evil Dead, like uh, the movie opened there. Like Robert, in, Robert is like a, you know he's he's kind of the king of Austin when it comes to film, and uh, he his studio over there, so everybody knows him. And um, particularly in the genre world, you know, that he, he's the man. So there, he, he invited a few filmmakers that were premiering movies there in Austin at some restaurants. So we went there and met him. I think he did a luncheon or something, like one of those press thing where he invited some people. So, so I kind of walked. To, I think I did the embarrassing. I walked to him just to meet him. I told him I was going to premiere a movie there for the first time. And so then eventually he invited me to that uh, dinner a few filmmakers he saw the movie he loved it and and, uh, and he it's so, a how long later I, a few months later I think he invited me to do an episode and I was like sure I don't know anything about doing television but uh uh, you know, it's uh, I'm a fan of the movie and uh, I was originally going to do the, the arrangement was that like was going to do the transition episode. You know, the, the one that uh, like in the movie, when you go from the kidnap story, you know, the Tarantino story, to the Rodriguez story, the the, the kidnap story to the to the vampire story. Those were, were my terms. I was like, do it as long as the other one. And it's like, oh, right, you got it. And then for schedule wise, I couldn't do that. And uh, and I end up I think I did. The one, the right, the one right after. So when everything has turned already, and uh, but you're yeah, you were in, in the Titty I, Twister. I just love the point, idea yeah. of going to a Titty Twister and shoot there a bunch of vampire stuff. There was something that and they had do they, they've done a recreation of the Titty Twister. And I just loved that movie when it came out. It was just amazing for me. So, so I was, it was a thrill to just go there. And also like again on the there's no time to prepare on television. There's very little time to any preparation. So you have to swing it. You have to show up and come up with a bunch of ideas and do it on the fly. And, and, and so that was, that was, that was the only thing I've, the, the, the only time I've done television in my life, then I n- never have time or opportunities. Like it just, just becomes um, a different thing. It just, you have to really chase it. I just never been there after, but that was the only time I did it. And I had a blast. Yeah. If you're gonna do TV, that's who you do it with, right? Robert Rodriguez. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> no, for sure. It's so, great. It was great. You know, great cast as well. I, love it. I, love it. I remember, like, I have this story for you. Like, uh, she, you know, we. I, someone told me it was like some sort of feud. That I don't think we ever had. I think she's great. But uh, what's her name? Uh, she plays, uh, you know, she's on she's in everything now. Like uh, I, Aza Rodriguez. You know her? Yeah, she's uh, she's, in she's a taxi driver, baby driver. Sorry, she's in a. Uh, She's in a bunch of movies. like it seems like every big movie now she's in it. But at the time she was, she wasn't that person at all. She was just uh, she was just the start of the show right and um <laughs> and, uh, she, hopefully she doesn't hate me for the end of the story but so we, and I you know I was you know we all had our egos I was uh, the, the the guy that had this hit movie not too long ago I'm I'm, I'm coming here to do a, 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 a you know a guest director to this episode of television that's what's in your head for most of people on set it's like who the fuck is this guy that is coming with all these ideas no one knows who you are but that's the and, and for the start of the show it's just like you know get off my back we've been doing this on our own without you for all these Day, so who cares so everybody has their own their narrative on their story in their heads of who's more important than who so so and i, I you know we we didn't have a lot of i think we did some scenes together but we did a lot of things with guys on on that on that episode but uh but there was this great backstory that told the story of how she became um like uh, the origin of her as a vampire i think or how how no how she turned uh, um, some of the character into a vampire and uh so suddenly was the time to do a lot of blood, and I was like, hey, "This, this is my thing. I love this." And she was, she was supposed to be, she was in an altar. She was supposed to be an offering. She was like a, this, or supposed to be this uh, holy thing for this, for the Aztecs, I think. So, um, so she was there, like it was a period moment. They brought a kid to her. And the twist in the scene is that they put the kid in front of her, she thinks it's just they should they bring the kid to show him a nice kid and then suddenly someone's come from behind and just slice his throat open. And she witnessed how he started bleeding from his throat, right? Like any you know, of the classic like open throat and then the the blood cascades down, right? And she was just going to be shocked by it. Like, wow, like the kid is dead. But then I was like, yeah, let's try something different. And what if, and I, and I talked with the prop guy and I was like, can we just make the cut? Like we make the cut and the blood just bursts in her face. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the guy was like, sure, I don't think she's going to like that. I'm like, no, let me talk to her. So I talked to her. I was like, hey, you know, like I'm thinking it's, is I think it's gross. Dang, it's just better and more fun if just, you know, they open his throat and just splatters all this blood on your face. And uh, she's like, no way. She's like, no way. No, 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 no. And also it was Friday, I think. She was totally right. She was like, you know, I don't want to get bath and fake blood. You know, it's last day. So it was the last hour and Friday, the last day. Like, don't do that to me. I was like, okay, don't worry. I was like, okay, just, yeah, just, just check it with you. I go back to the visual effects guy and goes like just just double the pressure on the host just do it with what we said but double
2: <laughs>
4: so, so, <laughs> so, so I was like
1: you know I was always trying to try to get an honest a, a good performance from her when she was completely surprised because we agreed yeah. we're not we know we were not gonna do the blood coming out of her throat <laughs> so, so the the guy's like She sure she said yes yes yeah, she said that she's fine actually you should put double I was like oh great. <laughs> this is obviously me having fun last day and everybody told me she was kind of the star of the thing I don't know her so I was like I'll oh, just have fun with this thing and, uh, and we did it and obviously it is on the show like suddenly cuts her throat the blood bursts out of her it keep bursting out and she's like covering her face and you know, all just covered like a gallows of blood and uh, and obviously she didn't she didn't take it well and she wasn't really happy about it I mean, she didn't tell me much but, uh, but then lately someone not too long ago someone said like oh yeah I think she fucking hates you. I'm like, does oh, she?
2: Like, oh, and I try to remember why. I was like,
1: what was that? And then someone told me that story. I was like, ah oh, yeah, the thing with the blood I did. That was probably that was very douchey. But uh that's my that was my best memory of that of that thing. And, and look, I, I think she's fantastic. She's a great actor and and it it's always great to see someone that you meet them when they're not. Big stars and see them growing and growing and growing. So, you know, if she's if she's listening to this, like I'm sorry for that. <laughs> like I was young and naive doing that. Hey man, that's part of the
4: fun of being in this stuff, right? Getting to be sprayed
1: with yeah. <laughs> double the pressure of blood, man. Yeah, that's why you are <laughs> right. right. Yeah, that's what you think, but you're not the one being covered. With blood.
4: Right, exactly. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. So moving forward, there's so many things you've been attached to. There's don't breathe too. I've heard about there's a film called Dante's Inferno legendary pictures says there's a shining a movie that's like the shining set in the White House there's 16 states for Lionsgate there's a Texas Chainsaw reboot there, there's a labyrinth. What exactly is true out of that list, and what, like what's in your what's in your wheelhouse right now?
1: Well, you know, a lot of the things usually is like you develop, right? Like uh, the, the the what happened after the last movie, in a way, and the last movie was kind of me going to make a movie on the studio for the first time, like from inside. So there was some things that I enjoyed, some things I didn't about that. I've been since wanted to just you know make the movies that really matters to me, and, and not much on an industrial level. And they and you know, not saying I won't do one of those, but. There was basically a lot of it, it, you know, we started Bad Ombre last year, um, a bit more than a year ago, which is my own company. With Roto, my co-writer, um, Shinshi Masawa, who's the producer friend of ours, he would produced a grudge back in the day, young guy like me. And um, and he basically we started the thing together and we started so we start developing a lot more than I used to. Some of the things are stuff that are it's the original ideas we had with Roto and we and we say some of them we we're gonna write them ourselves. But basically last year we've been busy producing, so we so we we got writers to work on those and some sometimes. You know, announcements are announcements sometimes you say, well, you know, we'd start developing this idea and just come and it leaks. And then some people take it. And, OK, this is what I'm doing. And for me to actually make it, I need to have the a script that I think, OK, this is great. This is perfect. This is a movie I should do. Otherwise, I don't. So it usually it takes time. I mean, it took how long did I take between Evil Dead and, and Don't Breathe? It took like four years or something like that. Um, so usually I, I I've been lucky to to be a, to be successful with the movies and, and enough that I could wait to take, make my decisions and and decide what movie I have to make next. I mean I heard Spielberg once saying uh, when they asked him what was the hardest part of making movies and he was he says choosing choosing the movie, which is so true. It's just like so hard to to decide what's worth your time and 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 uh, and the, and what's worth the attention of the audience. So we, so we. There's a lot of the things that are true. I mean, labyrinth. Uh, it was something I was going to do at some point, but then I stepped down. I, I just felt like I didn't want to. It was just a hard thing to do to go and try and revisit that. Uh, also, didn't want to be a I I I felt after the last movie. Which one of the things that I think affected the movie the most when it comes to the performance with the audience was that, you know, when people have a preconceived notion of something or what something should be, it's very hard to succeed to surprise them. They're just expecting the same thing again or a different thing. So I, I just decided I didn't want to do things as a director that people knew already what it was or, or have a preconceived notion of how it should look on, camera, on, sc- on the screen. So Labyrinth is something that was like, oh, that that would be something that people would judge that way. So I decided not to do it. Uh, Lens Inferno was a long time ago. Those things stayed. They never die on the Internet. It was like right after Evil Dead, I started developing that with Universal, but never really came to much. Uh, we never really came close to make a movie. It was just too big and insane. But something that one day we might go back to. It was actually a really cool story. Don't Pre-Choose, actually it was about to be shot, but not by me. My co-writer was gonna direct it and that was announced already. Like uh, Rhoda was gonna is gonna direct that. I think he's gonna do a great job. We wrote it together and uh but Rhoda's gonna direct it. I think he always uh, he directed a lot of stuff back in Uruguay and I think he's gotta do great. He's he's the one behind ideas like the blind man wants to have a kid back. The the the, the tongue cut in is all, Roto's, all of Roto's brain. So to see a movie directed by him, I think the audience will get a kick out of it because I, I'm the mild one. I'm the one that tries to reel, <laughs> reel him in and try to be soft uh, compared to Roto. Nice. So it's it's going to be really interesting to see that movie done by him. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'm just a producer as well. We have the Toehill Brothers. This guys from Ireland, they're amazing. They made a great movie called The Dig and, they, and we were really close on this one. So I've been really involved with the, with Chris Devlin, the screenwriter, and he, which is he's great as well. You'll you'll hear a lot from him on the next year because he's a, he's he's a young writer. But there's a couple of movies that he wrote that are coming out. So we you know we, it's just been a lot of um, a lot of those that sometimes they have my name attached, to it, but they're not. They, I'm just producing. The the, the the one that is called like the Shining in the White House that, that that is one of the projects I'm still working on at script level. but the world is changing so much you know and right now with the coronavirus and all that like to what's the stuff that people want to see the, 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 what's the stuff that I want to spend a lot of time in changes as, as well because I was trying to make movies that are somehow related to what's going on in the world at least in my head. so so that's why it, it just always takes time and again I, I, I just sure. don't think the world just needs another movie just for the sake of it. So I really take my time when it comes to decide what's the thing I really want to do. So and now we we, we got um, one of the strange things that happened for the first time that hadn't happened in a long time was that I start collaborating with uh, John Requa and, Glenn, and you know, Requa and Ficarra, and then and there are two writers that did a lot of things you saw. And they and and but they're my neighbors. Uh, They have their office very close to my house, and we we met through Roy Lee, the same guy I told you about. That it was the first guy I met here in Hollywood, and uh, we 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 both had the dream of making a great zombie movie, and um, that we felt that the the audience is due for one. So we started talking about it, and uh, and we came up with this uh, amazing story, I think, together, and they they wrote it. So they they were writing writing that script. And they were they finished that script right before the whole coronavirus started, and, and it has some element of a pandemic as well, and it kind of sure. more in a zombie movie kind of way. But um, but I'm um, that's one that I'm really excited, and which uh, and end up being and ironically, what well, coincidentally end up the producers on it are same guys I was telling you I met the first time: Nathan Kahane, uh, Joe Drake, all those guys that used to be. Uh, mandate that's the first company i've made my 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 first movie that made we i basically the same guys that we did evil dead and don't breathe with we partnered again for for this one so you know once the world opens again (laughs) and we can actually go back and make movies that probably was going to be the movie that i gotta be making So and and, uh, you'll you'll be surprised it's 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 a very very cool take on a zombie movie and zombies is one of my first love in 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 horror so so it's one of those i can't wait to go see and do Oh,
4: Fetty, that sounds awesome. We can't wait to see that. That is so great. Dude, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I don't want to take up any more of your time. It's been like a gracious honor, seriously, to sit here and and listen to these wonderful stories. We really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you, guys. Yes. It's, it's been a pleasure. Like uh, you know, I'm, this quarantine is so boring, man. <laughs> just, <laughs> just get a chance to talk with new friends.
4: We we have four kids, so it's like it's like being in a horror movie. <laughs> yeah, man,
1: yeah, yeah. Really but, it's be, but I tell you, it's gonna be a lot of creative stuff that's gonna come out of this. I think uh, a lot of my friends at work, you know, writers, directors, everybody's in a special place because it's such a weird place that um that I think in any in any level, I think once. Once the world opens up again, and the things, the products of, uh, you know, in one, and one hand, and I'm, and you know, there's going to be a lot of babies born. You know, like people say, in a few months, <laughs> a lot of creative babies are going to come out. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to be a new thing. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be like nothing before because it's this kind of th- moments like right now. They really, they're. Re- it's not that it makes it easy to see what matters. But it does make it easy to see what doesn't matter, what's completely irrelevant, the stupid things that we care about, and then suddenly go like, why do I care about this thing or that thing? So suddenly you're going to clean out a lot of the movies that are about shit that we don't give a shit. So, so then it, it's, I think once there's a new output of movies out there, and particularly in horror, it's going to be fascinating. Because I think it's going to be a lot of original, completely out of the left field ideas that are going to and I really can't wait to, to see those.
4: That was the Boo Crew Podcast episode 123. Special thanks to our guest Feddy Alvarez. Follow him at Fed Alvarez on Twitter. And if you haven't seen or if you have, it's really worth revisiting 2013's Evil Dead, Don't Breathe, and The Girl in the Spider's Web as soon as possible. So awesome.
3: Production tracks for this episode provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, stay safe, stay healthy, and sweet screams.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at Tales
0: Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, <laughs> horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas, listen free wherever you stream audio
2: and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.